Uh, you might, some of you might be surprised if you know what kind of a, a person I am with reading, that when I was in elementary school, I was considered a, a very bad reader and was in the very low classes uh, of my group. We, we had different reading groups. If you remember back in the day, I don't know what they do anymore, but we had little reading groups. And the really good, smart kids, the good readers, they read in one group. And then the little bit down group, they read. And I was down in one of those low groups that could hardly read a sentence straight, you know, and had all sorts of problems with that. When I got in junior high, I don't think they do this kind of stuff anymore. I could be wrong. But in junior high, we divided, they, they divided our junior high, my seventh grade class, into five different divisions, depending on your academic ability. Uh, the seven fives were the brilliant kids. They were the smart ones that were going, going to go on to change the world. Probably most of them are on food stamps now, but uh, that's a different story. The seven fours were, were very smart, but not quite up to the seven fives. The seven threes were average. The seven ones and twos were the dunces of the class, more or less, and I was seven two. So I was a seven twoer. And I accepted that. Um, I accepted that. They considered me a bad reader and uh, a bad student. And I, I said, well, I, I'm pretty comfortable with that, actually. Uh, wasn't going to, I, wasn't anx- I don't remember being anxious about it whatsoever. I thought I was. I was just a 7 tour. Uh, we had one little girl in our 7-2 group, though, that was really brilliant. She was mistyped. She should have been a 7-5. And we praised her. We loved that little girl. Every time she excited, got something... Uh, some kind of award or something that we, we wrapped around her and praised her because she was us. She represented the smart kid in our seven tours. Well, throughout those years, I, 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 things changed. I'll get to that later on. But, you know, uh, as long as I accepted the idea that I couldn't read and that I wasn't good at this and that I was a bad student, as long as I was comfortable there, I stayed there. And that's where I was in that, in that particular period in my life. We come to the Corinthians, and we find that they are living very below, much below their standards, much below the privileges Christ has given them, much below the position the Lord has created them to be in. And as a result of that, they're comfortable. We don't, we don't find them being anxious about not living the godly life. We don't find them anxious about, about uh, the low standard of spirituality they had uh, until Paul came to town. And Paul would write letters to say to them, look, you're not living as you ought to be living. Uh, you're not living up to the standards that God has saved you to live up to. You're not living out your privileges and your position. And Paul took him to task in First and Second Corinthians. And even another letter that we don't have in our possession, apparently he took them to, cl- to task for that as well. Uh, as we look at the lives of these people, they were in a spiritual failure for the most part. And uh, they were doing that in two general ways. That was evidenced in two general ways. Uh, one is that they were mistreating one another. We've seen that throughout the first six chapters. And just prior to this section here, uh, they were even going to court against one another, suing one another. That's, a, that's how far their mistreatment of one another had, had drifted. And then, but, and then there was this moral uh, behavior. They were living immorally in many ways and in sinful ways. And that's what we're going to examine today. We looked at the other before. We're going to look at their moral behavior And what we find here is at Corinth, as in every church since, uh, there's always, uh, in generalities, two different classes of people. There are those who are self-deceived, and there are those who are transformed. We're going to look at those two classes very briefly here. We'll start with the self-deceived in verse 9. He starts out this way, Or do you not know, he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Six times in this chapter, he comes out saying, do you not know? Uh, He says it in verse 2 and in verse 3. 
Uh, in verse 9, this is the third time he's done it, and then he'll go on to do it in verses 15, 16, and 19. So this is the big deal. Uh, they should know, but they don't seem to know the things that Paul is teaching them, and that is why they're living the way that they're living. Paul's point is going to be in verse 9, as we look at this, do, not, you do, do you not know, is that his point is going to be that it's impossible to live like the devil's children and yet think that you're God's child. It's impossible to live as uh, the child of Satan lives and at the same time believe that eventually you're going to go to heaven with those who are the true children of God. Now that's his premise. Let's work through that a little bit. Uh, they did not seem to know uh, that those who are unrighteous and who evidence that unrighteousness will not inherit the kingdom of God. Look at, go ahead and look at this verse a little further. I, I just want to read that over again to get the point. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Now I'm going to talk about something that's really unpopular in many circles right now. Uh, and that is that those who are living in an un, un, ungodly way, who are not living out the righteousness that they claim to have in Christ, uh, are self-deceived and are not Christians at all. Now, that's not very popular at all. People don't like, like to think that way. We always think there's exceptions to that. Uh, if you, but the scriptures are teaching that if you, if you live like the world, you almost certainly are of the world. That's serious to consider. Don't be deceived. So repugnant is that idea that, uh, that many in recent years have come up with a new interpretation for this passage, an interpretation never found in church history until recent years, and that is the interpretation that Paul is not talking about salvation, he's talking about reward. So he's not saying they're not going to be saved, he's saying they're not going to be rewarded with being in the kingdom of heaven. So here's his basic point, if I can put it in very colloquial terms. He is saying that you as a Christian, you are a Christian, but if you live like the devil's child, you're still going to be saved. And when you die, you're going to go to heaven, but you're not going to be in the kingdom. And you're going to live in the suburbs, uh, or, or maybe the slums, depending on your behavior, but you're not going to get through the gates of the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And that is, that is very simplistically the theology that, that some are throwing about now. That interpretation is, is there primarily because we, uh, we don't want to think of anybody that we love not being in heaven who claims to be a Christian, right? We can all come up with people's names. Oh, I know they're saved. They walked the aisle. They were baptized. They, they seemed to serve the Lord for a long time. And yet, when it was all said and done, they walked away. They're living ungodly lives now. They've been living ungodly lives for decades. And yet I know they're saved because they made that profession at camp or VBS or whatever years and years ago and claimed to be saved. And so we want to believe they're saved. And, and I want to say this early on. I'll probably say it two or three times. We personally don't stand in judgment on who's saved and who's not saved. I don't know that. God knows that. But I do know the evidence that's given here in Scripture is if you live like the devil's children, you almost certainly belong to his family. And so there should be a radical change in your life. Now this idea, I'm going, to, I'm going to spend a little time on this because this idea has in, influenced a lot of people in recent times, even those that disagree with the, the philosophy or the interpretation of this passage uh, get this confused. So I'm going to look at some passages with you uh, that from other scriptures. I'm going to start with Jesus and we're going to go back to John chapter 3. So we're going to move around a little bit this morning, uh, more than normal. So if you have your Bible, go to, go to these passages. If you have your your device, use that if you want to, or just listen if you need to. 
but we'll look at four or five passages to show the consistent teaching of Scripture. This is the famous account of Jesus with Nicodemus. I just want to prove to you my, the point that I'm making that, uh, Jesus, that Paul is talking not about reward but about salvation. Jesus, verse 3, answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born, again, born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I say to you, you must be born again. Now notice Jesus' complete tie with being born again with, with, with that of being in the kingdom of God. He says it twice concerning the kingdom. Jesus is talking not about reward, but about salvation. He is saying to Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be born from above. You must be born of the spirit or you will not see the kingdom of God. That's salvation, isn't it? And that's not unique just to chapter 3. I want you to go back to Matthew chapter 19. And I, by the way, as I look at these, this is a quick overview. We're flying over. I'm not looking at details here. But I want you to look at the, what we call the rich young ruler. In verse 16 of Matthew chapter 19, Jesus once again. And he says, And someone came to him and said, and this is found in the other gospels, so we know he's rich, we know he's young, we know he's a ruler. An important rich man. Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? Now he wants to know about eternal life. And then Jesus has quite a dialogue with him, which if we analyzed it carefully, was basically saying, you're not saved by your works or keeping commandments. Uh, you, you can't be saved in that manner. You, you're saved by coming to, to Christ. That's not our subject right now. Go down to verse 23. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now notice, Jesus again couples uh, eternal life, back in verse 16, with the kingdom of heaven in verse 23, and the kingdom of God in verse 24. There's no difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. Just different terminology. But he says that you're not going to be in the kingdom of God unless you have eternal life. So he's talking about salvation, not a reward. Let's go to the epistles now. Go to 1 John chapter 1 and look at that. John, John is writing in this first epistle of his concerning the evidences of salvation. So we're not surprised to find him talking about this subject early on. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, we get a bit of a balance here. So, and I want to keep make, get this balance to you early, and I'll say it again. But in verse 8 of chapter 1, he says, If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. There's deception again. And the truth is not in us. So here's, here we start with the balance. Uh, you will sin. If you are a Christian, you will sin still. Even though now you have been saved and born again and transfer, transformed by the power of the Spirit, you still sin. And anyone who believes they do not are deceiving themselves, John says. Because what they're basically doing is redefining sin into something that they don't do. But we all know our own hearts. We all know that we sin. But John goes on. He's not done. Go to chapter 3, chapter 3, 7 and 8. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. See, we're still in this deception mode. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. But the one who practices sin is of the devil. 
So John, here's the balance. John says, yes, you will sin. And if you don't think you're going to sin or don't think you do sin, you are self-deceived. Get over it. But he goes over here and he says, look, if that's your lifestyle, if that is how you live, if, that is what, if sin characterizes your life, then he's saying to them, look, you are, are of the devil. He's not saying that those who sin are, not, are lost. He's saying those whose lives, lives are characterized by habitual sin cannot believe that they're really saved because of the way they're living. Go to James chapter 2. Let's look at one more passage in, by another author of Scripture, James chapter 2. James is talking about works and faith all the way through, showing what the, how that works. And he's really showing us the content of saving faith. But 2.14, he says, What use is it, my brethren, if anyone, someone says that he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? Verse 18, But someone may well say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works. I'll show you my faith by my works. Again, we're not exegeting this passage. But what he's saying is this. True saving faith. The content of true saving faith results in works. It, it results in a life change. It results in fruit, as different passages would say. And so if you have no change of life and claim to be a Christian, you've got a problem, according to these passages. Let's look at one more. Go to Galatians chapter 5 where we, we have Paul in another context, Galatians chapter 5, this wonderful passage on the fruit of the Spirit, and uh, look at verse 21 with me, 5.21. He gets, he, he, in verses uh, 19 through 21, he's giving a long list of sinful behaviors and so forth, kind of like what he does in 1 Corinthians. And then at the end of verse 21, he says, I, I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Same thing. And so all these passages and many others will point to the same truth as we go back to 1 Corinthians, that if you live like the devil's kids, you're probably one of the devil's kids. The, ch the child of God should be transformed by the power of God so that they're, so that they're not sinless by any means, but they are individuals who are living out the righteousness of God because God is in them. So when we go back to our passage of Scripture, Paul, uh, to claim to be saved and yet live a life continuously ruled by sin, under the power of sin, enslaved by sin, is self-deception. That is what he's saying here. I like the way a southern pastor back in the 1800s said it, very simply, very quaint. He said it this way, if you is what you was, you ain't. Okay? If, you claim, if you're claiming to be a Christian, if you is what you was, you ain't. And I think that's said quite well. Like at Corinth, every congregation, uh, in every congregation are those who are professed to be Christians, but they, they like the Christian system, they like some of the doctrine, they like the, the worship of the services or whatever, but, but they don't want to live for Christ as their Lord and Savior. And Paul is talking about these people, and he's warning them that that is a fatal mistake, possibly an eternal fatal mistake of those who claim to be saved. And don't show any, any point of that. And as I said a moment ago, we, we always run to, what about so-and-so? Surely they're saved. They showed that evidence years ago, but they're not walking with God. They're living godless. The issue, according to James, we just read in chapter 2, verse 18, is not what we say, but what, because what we say can be anything. Our life shows what we really believe. We can say we believe, but does our life show that we believe? 
And that is his point. So my, once again, the balance. I want to I back off the text for just a moment and give a balance because this can be easily confused. How do you know you're saved? Let me add, just throw that out there. How do you know biblically that you're a Christian? So if you're not real sure on that topic, I want you to listen very carefully, even if you just fall asleep throughout the rest of the sermon, listen very carefully to this. How do you know biblically that you're a Christian? There are two evidences, biblically in generality, of how we know we're saved. Number one is have you trusted Jesus Christ by faith alone for the forgiveness of your sins? Jesus Christ died in your place. He took your sins upon himself. That when we place our faith in him, he offers a gift to us of eternal life. Uh, and we will go to the kingdom of God. He, he tells us that when we trust him alone, that we are saved. So have you done that? Have you, have you recognized your, your bankruptcy personally? That you have no means personally of ever pleasing God? There's, there's no merit in you. There's no ability that you could possibly have uh, to uh, be good enough to, to earn salvation. Have you recognized that? Have you recognized that you are a sinner and you have turned from wanting to live in that lifestyle to following the Lord Jesus Christ? And you've received his gift by faith alone. That's the first and primary and most important evidence of salvation. You have trusted in Jesus Christ by faith alone. Here's the second evidence, and that is that that saving faith should change your life. There should be evidence. Paul calls it in, first, in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, James calls it works. Uh, other, other passages speak, just simply speaks of transformation as we're going to look at in just a moment. The transformed life, a life that's been changed by Jesus Christ. Now, the question always comes up, well, how much evidence do we need? How much fruit do we have to have to know we're saved? I don't know. But as my illustration I've given over the time, over years, is if, the, if we have a baby and that baby is alive, we know that baby's alive because it breathes, it moves, it, it wiggles, it, uh, it eats. We know it's alive because there's signs of life. And if there's no signs of life, the baby's not alive. And if a person claims to be born again, a Christian, and there's absolutely no sign of life, spiritually speaking, why be self-deceived? There should be signs of life. Not perfection, but life. And I think that's what Scripture would teach. Now let's go back to our passage. And let's look at, uh, very quickly, ten different sins Paul goes through. These are not exhaustive. They're representative. We've looked at them back in chapter 5. Most of them, he talked about the same ones for the most part before. But let me really quickly hit on a few of them. Uh, the first one is uh, translated in the New American Standard. And I think the King James is fornication. And he says this here, do not be deceived, neither, neither fornicators. That's an unfortunate translation. And the modern translations, including the updates of the, of the New American Standard, have replaced that with the right word. Because fornication speaks to us differently than what the truth is. The, word, the Greek word is porneus, or pornea. It's a word that is a catch-all general category for all immoral sins, all sexual sins. And so it's a broad category. You, you can, if you can think of it, that falls under that umbrella. Uh, it seems like every month we get a new category of de deviant sexual behavior in America. Those all fall under the umbrella of pornea, immorality, sexual immorality. Secondly is idolatry. Idolatry, uh, matter of fact, the first five of these are all sexual in nature. But the idolatry here is um, probably... Uh, it's sexual in nature because most people who have looked at this carefully believe this is a, 
a, a, a unique idolatry. It's not the idolatry that we simply think of worshiping at the idols and so forth, but that, that, that as we'll see later in the chapter, there was these uh, the priestesses down at the temple, these pagan temples, in which uh, they were prostitutes that the men of Corinth went to all the time. It was just part of their lifestyle. And some of the Christians at the church of Corinth, were some of these men were continuing to do that. Uh, they did that because they'd done it all their lives and didn't think anything of it. Secondly, they'd still hung on to the Greek worldview that taught that it didn't matter what we do with our bodies. We can do anything we want to do with our bodies as long as we keep our spirit clean. And they kept, they kept that. And so they were, they were going down and they were partaking with these prostitutes. And Paul is saying that that is a form of idolatry because that's part of the worship of the pagan gods. And so they're worshiping these pagan gods through this behavior. Thirdly, we have idolatry, which is once again a, a, the issue of a, a mar- of a married person stepping outside the bonds of marriage to have relationships. The, word, the next word is effeminate. That word means soft. And it was uh, the passive partner of a homosexual relationship. So you plug that in your thoughts on that. But that's what that was. And some people even sold themselves as mistresses at uh, that time for that, cat, for that reason. In our day, with the blending of genders and so forth, we also have some of these issues concerning uh, women behaving like men and men behaving like women and all those kinds of transgender issues. And if you take a stand on something like that, you know what you're going to be called, don't you? You're going to be called judgmental. You're going to be called a hater. And yet we have this in the scriptures. And that leads right into the next one, homosexuality. Um, this was a vulgar slang back in the day, very vulgar. And you don't even find it in the secular literature much of the day because it was such a vulgar slang type of word. But the meaning is very clear. A homosexual lifestyle uh, is what he's, of, of behavior in that way. Now, just as a side note, homosexuality as an identity as a lifestyle was not known in ancient times. This is a modern construct. There were people that committed homosexual acts, but nobody identified as a homosexual. That's a modern construct. But uh, so he is saying here that anybody that engages in these things, this behavior, is, that's a sinful behavior. The next three together, thieves, greedy, greedy, and then drop on down to swindlers. Uh, these people were taking advantage of one another. We saw them in courts against one another. And so I think that's what he's talking about. Drunkards and revilers. Well, drunkards and revilers go together. Revilers are, are, are abusive people. And many people who, are, who get drunk get, get abusive. So we put all that together. And he is saying here that these are choices people make. None of these are, are conditions outside of our control. None of these are addictions. These are choices that people make. And he's saying that those who make those choices, he says for the second time, verse 10, will not inherit the kingdom of God. So if this is your lifestyle, if this is your habitual lifestyle, if this is your characteristic, he's saying you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now we're going to move quickly from the self-deceived to the transformed. And I'm glad to get there. In verse 11 he says, such were some of you. And whenever I read that little line, I just, almost, I just take a, a sigh of relief. We've been looking at this ugly, ugly, sinful behavior that some of the Christians there were involved in. And some who were not Christians who thought they were, were involved in. 
And then he comes verse 11. Such were some of you. Isn't that beautiful? You used to be that way, but you ain't now. Going back to my preacher a minute ago. You've changed. You're transformed. And he wants to talk about that transformation in this beautiful verse of Scripture. Let's look at three transactions that took place at the moment of your salvation. Everybody here, no matter what your spiritual condition, went through these three transactions at the moment of salvation. Number one, uh, you were cleansed or washed by God. He says, such were some of you, but you were washed. You were washed by God. That they were purified from their former sins. Do they realize it? Do you realize he's saying to them that you have been washed by God, cleansed by God from these sinful behaviors that were part of your life before? But before your life was polluted and corrupted and dripping with all these awful sinful behaviors, but you have been washed from those. No matter what your category, no matter how deep in sin you were, uh, you have been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Yesterday we had a wonderful church retreat. It rained on us about lunchtime. Fortunately for us, the, we were there. We were underneath the pavilion by that time. Didn't get too wet, but it really poured, and everybody around here probably knows that. And we had fun under the, under the tent or under the pavilion. After the rain stopped, the little children couldn't resist going out in the mud puddles, and a lot of them did. One of them, I won't mention her name, decided to play in the wet sand for a while. And uh, that was a quite an interesting little mess. We even had some big children, they're called adults, <laughs> run out into, uh, into the weather and, uh, and get dirty as a pi- little piggies. And, and uh, we had all those kinds of things going on. They're all dirty. What do you do with somebody who is that messed up, that filthy? What do you do with them? Uh, well, you put them in a bag and take them home. I don't know about the adults. But, but when you get them home, you give them a bath. You come to church tomorrow, kid. You're, coming, you're going to have to get cleaned up. You're going to have to get washed up. We're going to get those clothes off. We're going to throw them somewhere. And we're going to stick you in a tub. We're going to wash you up. You've been washed. So no matter how dirty they got, Jordan, no matter how dirty they got, and our brand new member today, I won't mention his name, out there like little children, filthy, dirty, they had to take a bath, I hope. Now, if you didn't, don't tell me. Okay? It got washed. So here's all that pollution, all that dirt. It's washed off. And that's the picture we have here of, of salvation. You were, I don't care how dirty you were. I don't care if you were as dirty as that little girl in the sandbox. And that was dirty. You, you've been washed. You're clean. It's gone. Isn't that a precious thing? I mean, even in looking at ourselves right now as, sin, as, we, as Christians who sin, and I look at my own life sometimes and say, man, how can I be this way? How can I think that way? How can I have that attitude? I've been washed. The Lord has washed me of these things. Now there's a second word. And by the way, Titus 3.5, we don't have time to go there, calls that regeneration. Washing of regeneration. We're born again. We're new. We're cleaned up. We're, we have new lives. Second word is sanctification. We are sanctified, he said. Sanctified means to be set apart, as you know. Uh, and scripturally, it's set apart for a holy purpose for God. We've been set apart for Him. So now we have these little children that went to the, to the retreat. They got filthy. They came home and got washed. You've got to keep them in the house the rest of the day. They can't go outside. What are they going to do? They're children. Their nature is to be children. They're going right back to the mud puddles. They're going to do it again. We're going to church tomorrow. You can't be that filthy. 
We're going to keep you in the house. We're going to sanctify you, so to speak, keep you away from those things. At the moment of salvation, the Lord plucked us out of a polluted world and took us into the body of Christ. He took us out of the sinful condition and the child of the devil, and he made us the child of God. We have been set apart for the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe we don't feel like that sometimes. And sometimes we may not do what we should do. But, but the Lord is telling us, if you're his, you have been plucked out of that. And you've been set apart so that you don't live that way anymore. And then he's not done. He says, and we're justified. That means uh, to be forgiven of our sins and to be given the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 21. Look that up. Given the righteousness of God. We're now righteous in his sight no matter how we live because of what Christ has done for us. So we take our little child who's got all muddy yesterday. The, the little child has been washed. His, the little child's been sanctified so it doesn't go back out and get dirty again. But not only that, it's now been clothed and has come to church. It has on new, fresh, clean clothing. And here, it, here that little child is in a brand new set of clothing or at least a clean set of clothing. And they're here among us today. None of them wore what they wore at the picnic, at the, at the retreat. Now, I didn't see anybody coming in with those clothes. We have, we have, there's new clothes, clean clothes, and that's what you are. You're not only plucked out of a sinful world, you have been given the righteousness of Christ. You've been clothed with the righteousness that belongs to Jesus, and only you can have that through Jesus Christ himself. The problem with the Corinthians is they were living so far below their standards, and some of us do the same, Right? And periodically, perhaps all of us do. But he tells us here, look, I'm telling you, if you know him, you have been washed and you have been sanctified and you have been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does he, where does he take them then? These people that are struggling so deeply with sin, he takes them straight to the cross. What Jesus did for them at the cross to wash them and sanctify them and give them the righteousness of God. And such people will enter the kingdom of God not because of what they've done, not because of their goodness, but because that Jesus Christ has washed them and sanctified them and given them the righteousness of God himself. He points us to the cross. If I could close out with going back to my early story of being a seven-tour and pretty uh, inept in reading, Somewhere in that area, I, b I began to believe that I could actually read. And even though they told me I couldn't, and I believed I couldn't, and I was pretty comfortable not being able to read much or very well, so I, I kind of thought maybe different. I started reading. I started, first of all, reading animal adventure stories. I read everything our, our town library had from uh, Call of the Wild on down, you know, everything I could get my, my hands on. And then I started reading science fiction. Then I started reading history. Then I started reading Christian things. And I've been reading ever since, as a lot of you know. Uh, something changed. I no longer accepted the idea of others and maybe myself that I couldn't. That, that there, there was the possibility that I could read and I could think a little differently. My, who I believed I was made a difference in how I became academically. Who you believe you are biblically, your position in Christ, makes all the difference in how you live the Christian life. If you don't believe that you're washed, sanctified, and have been given the righteousness of God, then you don't live that way. When you realize and accept that the Lord Jesus, because of the cross, cleaned you up, set you aside for himself, 
and given you the righteousness of God so that he will one day take us to be with him in the kingdom of God. When you know that to be the case, how do you want to live? How should we want to live? I think I know the answer to that. Pray with me. Father, thank you now for this wonderful passage of Scripture that calls us to live out the privileges that you've given us in Christ. Father, I pray for everyone here. I know some people here probably are not saved. I don't know who they might be. You do. That's not for me to judge, but that's for for them and you. May they look deeply in their hearts today, Lord, to determine whether or not they know you as Lord and Savior of their lives. And others, Lord, all of us, may we be rejoicing as we leave and encouraged to walk the walk that you've given us to walk because of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.